You're listening to Dots, Lines, and Destinations, a travel podcast with host Stephen Seagraves, Fosma Moon, and Seth Miller. Hello, and welcome to episode 298 of Dots, Lines, and Destinations. I'm Stephen Seagraves, joined by the usual cast of characters, Seth Miller, Fosma Moon. Hey, guys. Well, good afternoon. Spaz is now unmuted, so we're good. We can, we, we can start the show. Um, <laughs> it's not as much fun talking to myself. <laughs> you know, you know, after being on so many conference calls, like the number of people, I should, I should really just like keep a tally of how many times people say, "Oh, sorry, I was talking on mute." <laughs> just to know. To be fair, I used that as an excuse when I wasn't paying attention, and I realized <laughs> that I had been called on. And I was like, "Oh crap! They must be waiting for me to answer that question and pretend that I was on mute because." Obviously, I wasn't actually doing what I was supposed to be doing. So consider that as something else that might be happening when people say that. I never even thought of that. I like it. Oh, yeah. It's much better than saying, I'm sorry, I wasn't paying attention to this moronic call because I think it's a total waste of my time and yours. But here we are anyways. This, this is a phone call that could have been handled with an email. Yeah. <laughs> uh, lately. Um, so uh, in, in loyalty news, and we haven't talked about loyalty, I think, in a long time. Uh, JetBlue has launched cash and points rewards. Yeah, it's exciting. Uh, is is this the is this the future of of, of uh, airline reward programs? Well, so remember that JetBlue TrueBlue was already a revenue based redemption, mm-hmm. right? And it was not a strict value; it was a range, but it was a relatively tight range, about one to one and a half cents per point. Okay. And so the idea of being able to add, you know, to mix and match in that context actually makes a ton of sense. Um, the challenge is, in, well, there's a lot of challenges. One is getting the tech up to snuff to be able to do it, which is almost certainly where JetBlue faced most of their challenges, but then also how to price it. Um, JetBlue does an interesting thing where more expensive tickets, the more expensive the ticket, the lower the value of the points. So if you find that like $49 one-way sale fare, mm-hmm. your points are a great deal. You probably get a, you know, 1.5 to 1.8 cents value out of them. But if you get the $600, $800 last-minute walk-up, whatever or the $1,000 mint ticket, you know, you, you might drop to 0.7 or 0.8 cents. So it's uh, it's an interesting uh, mental exercise to get around. You know, it's cheap enough that I should just buy it, but this is where my points are going to be most useful. Mm. Yeah, um, I mean, that, that kind of makes it hard, right? Because a $49 ticket's really... You yeah, know, it's like, why wouldn't I just pay cash there? Because I can afford it. I try to use my points for things I can't really afford. Yep. And then the points become less valuable. So it's like, okay, well, I'll, buy, I'll use my points for all the $49 tickets and then, like, in theory, put that $49 away a few times and then have the $500 I need for the other ticket. But, you know, yep. it doesn't really work that way. It's yep. <laughs> um, all programs switch to revenue base. Isn't that the outcome that we're going to have across the board? Depends on how they implement redemption. Um, I expect that we will see more of that. And, right, it makes sense for the airline also as those lower cash value tickets are sort of more discretionary travel and things and better value to sort of give up on the points. Although at some level, if you say the points are the points and they all have a fixed value, then does it matter whether someone's redeeming a few of them many times or a lot of them one time? If, if you're truly accounting for the value the same way, it's where you are, if they're able to in- get incremental value to the program by devaluing the points, that was super confusing to say, sorry, um, for the more expensive redemptions is where it gets, you know, better for the airline and worse for the cons- consumer. So, <laughs> um, but Anyway, so the, uh, for JetBlue, one of the interesting things, the cash in points, I did some test redemptions when they announced it the other day and came up with a pretty consistent uh, 0.9 cents per point, which is low, um, which kind of sucks, but I guess not too surprising. Um, a couple other things they're doing. One is they're going to enable cash in points for their vacations packages, which is interesting. So in theory, you can now use your airline points to pay for hotel bookings, 
Although we got to see how it plays out in that context. It may, yeah, yeah. They may only apply it to the airline portion of it. Um, so we'll have to see. And then if you book a cash and points ticket, the cash portion still counts towards mosaic credit. Oh, interesting. So that, I, I, as far as I, as far as I know, they're the only one doing that. I don't know all of them real well. And there's not a ton of cash and points, uh, options out there where spend is also part of the deal. But yeah, it's a super interesting approach. The segment doesn't count, but the, uh, cash portion of the fair does. <laughs> and then I mean, the one other, sorry, go ahead. I was just gonna say that's an interesting like caveat because you know being able to earn while you're basically burning some points is a, is a nice touch. Yeah, um, remember their program is basically spend um, X dollars and earn status. So mm-hmm. it's it's five thousand uh, for the year. Typically, it's less than this year. It's half, I think. Um, but typically, it's spend five thousand dollars in status. And so, you know, if instead of spending one hundred fifty dollars on the ticket, you spend one hundred dollars plus some points, you get your hundred dollars worth of credit still. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, it's overall, it's an interesting concept, um, you know, because the valuation is relatively poor. I'm not sure it'll matter for me, but it's neat to see him trying something, I guess. And the the uh, vacations part is interesting. The I say one other limitation of it is they basically have eight or nine price points, I think, per ticket. And you get a slider and they're sort of predetermined what those values are going to be. And it's a little random. There's one where it got, you know, all the way down to like five dollars for just the taxes and then all points. And there's one that I did where it was like. 100, you know, started at $280, got down to 140 and then the next option was just $5 in all points. So, like, why did that one scale less and where sometimes they scaled more smoothly? Hmm. Who knows? But did, you, did you happen to look at the actual revenue buckets to see what they were looking like when you did that? I did not. Um, you mean, like, I guess it, they're, us, they're using the same fare as the regular revenue bucket. Right, so each one might be tied to a revenue bucket. The ratio, you mean? Yeah. That's interesting. So if they're selling me a full Y, then the points would be from the, each of these underlying fair classes. Exactly. I don't think they are just based on what some of the numbers were, um, but that would be a inter- super interesting way to do it. But if, and it might be like they might not have like a bottom three buckets, so you get to the fourth one, yeah. and then you, you, the next one goes down to that 560 because you're buying the whole thing at that point because those yeah. three buckets are zeroed. Yeah. I don't know. I have to look. I'd have to go back and look more closely. That's an interesting idea, though. Um. I mean, what does this mean, like other loyalty programs and promos? I mean, we, Seth, you mentioned before we started the show, Avianca is doing some crazy stuff right now. They had a 150% buy promo, which is, even for Avianca standards, Life Miles, Life Miles it's a separate company, um, and it's not bankrupt, uh, but, or not included in the Avianca bankruptcy filings. But yeah, it's a crazy, um, it was a crazy good deal. It's over now. Uh, and crazy good deal is relative. It's a crazy good deal if you could redeem them immediately and had a way to cash them out. Investing in points is always a bad idea, and investing in points for a program tied to an airline that's currently in Chapter 11 for most of its operations is a really bad idea. Uh, so, well, the, I, mean, I mean, one of the other problems with Life Miles right now is a lot of folks are having issues getting rebooked when a carrier cancels a flight. Shocking. And they're not getting much in wave options. They're getting, it's taking forever to even get their points or cash back. So, I mean, it seems short-sighted to be buying points right now. Yeah, I, I mean, I... Never recommend buying points, but especially if you don't know what's going on. But if you're getting a kickback, then you're going to promote it. Sure. <laughs> uh, do you think there's like anybody? I mean, I know that Alaska ran a big like sixty percent bonus, which for them is a lot. Typically, it's maxes at around fifty percent. Um, is there anybody else you guys know that's running big promos right now? I mean, there was the American five hundred points for buying a ticket thing. I think we talked about at one point. Southwest had a double points. I feel like United was doing something at one point. I mean, I haven't honestly haven't paid a lot of attention, but I've seen a lot of offers. 
Yeah. I mean, I, I pay a lot of attention because I know I'm not going to fly. <laughs> yeah. I just got an offer for double points if I convert my cho- choice hotels to United Mileage Plus. So, you know, that's compelling. <laughs> How often do you stay at choice hotels? I, I actually have. Uh, I'm not sure I joined the program because uh, it wasn't a great deal. But <laughs> I think it was for a one-off stay and like, you needed too many. And Yeah, yeah. Um, so American is no longer blocking middle seats, but they require a health questionnaire. Yes. Uh, yeah. This is. I don't know if this is great news. This is. I don't. I don't know if this is terrible news. It's just disappointing news, I guess. I'm torn on it. I think. I think from a sort of optics perspective, announcing, sending out a huge email blast and press release saying we're really concerned about your health and safety on board, and these are all the things we're doing, and in, not necessarily including in that, but sort of burying in the, that the announcement that oh, and by the way, we're not going to handle, we're not going to block middle seats anymore. Yeah, is certainly not a great look, right? But I also think we've come to the point where like. It's pretty clear that there's no such thing as social distancing on airplanes anyways, and it was never going to be a long-term solution. And I mean, maybe Delta, I mean, Delta JetBlue, Southwest and Alaska, I think, are the U.S. carriers still offering it. So who knows how much longer, but at least through the end of July for a couple. Um, it really comes down to can they drive a higher fare from that, mm, yeah. right? Or or is it a lower fare and they're just going to not sell tickets, I guess. It's the other, like, it doesn't matter if you have a higher fare and you're, if you never sell the seats, but... Yeah, I mean, like, uh, go ahead, so, go ahead, Foss. I was just going to say, I mean, it's not like they have a capacity problem. They all have larger and larger planes sitting out there. And plenty of empty planes that they could return to service. Um, it's, it's interesting, though. I mean, if you look at what American has done in terms of passenger growth, um, I want to say that three of the last five days have been their busiest, which, not surprising, things are continuing to rebound. But, like, it, there's, there's a lot there. There's a lot of uh, passengers coming back, and... I would say that, you know, that some of the, the average load factor numbers are high, like very high relative, you know, for current era. Why wouldn't you just upgauge everything and play off the goodwill longer? Your staff costs are covered through September. Yeah. I mean, yeah. yeah. Right. So you've got the staff. It's not like that's going to cost you anything more. Fuel, maybe. Maintenance. Well, OK, but if you take a lower end plane off and upgauge it, you well, I mean, from a from a, I mean, from like a cycles perspective, right? Like your wide bodies are doing less cycles a, a day. They might do two turns or three turns, right? But whereas, I mean, but if you go from a three nineteen to three twenty one, yeah, or seven three G to seven three nine, right? Those are easily done. Mm-hmm. It I, seems short sighted at a time when you could buy free goodwill because your staff costs are covered. I don't disagree, but I don't think American thinks that way. I would argue that American plans to do both, right? Fill the fill the current planes up, and there's an argue. Arguably, they're doing it at lower yields and just dumping inventory, or not dumping, but take as much cash as they can get again while uh, operating costs are lower because the staff is paid for. But but you know, part of the advantage of getting people on planes is rebuilding consumer confidence, right? That's what the other thing the industry has to deal with. So if you can make consumer confidence increase, then long term you're improving your prospects. So if that means flying a larger plane with some empty seats, but you get comfort, people comfortable flying, that helps you in the long run. I just think it's amusing that you're talking about long-term value for an airline and that they should think that way. I mean, you, <laughs> where have you been the last, like, 15 years? Well, they all want to survive, right? This is just about long-term survivability. Well, is it, though? I would, I would argue that short-term cash beats long-term survivability right now for many of them, whether it should or not. right? I, I, mean, I would disagree because I think most of the leaders at these companies are heavily invested in how the stock performs because that is the bulk of their compensation. If they have to file for Chapter 11, all of their executive compensation packages go poof. That is the one advantage to paying executives with a high, uh, in larger amounts of stock. Hmm. I, I, yeah, I don't know. I still wonder if that 
that's still a short-term thing in some way. Or, or you could argue that, it's, that it, then that it should always be a long-term consideration, right? right. We've, always, we've often argued that because they're paid in stock, it's whatever they can do to keep you know to prop the stock price up this quarter as opposed to the longer-term play. I, I don't know. I feel like we're being a little hypocritical there. But, but a lot of those options don't invest instantly, right? So in a lot of those cases, they do have long-term uh, perspe- perspective in play. Right, Oscar didn't get rich in a quarter or two. He got rich in over years of the stock going up from fourteen and change to ninety. Yeah, I just, absolutely. But if that's the case, then should we consider that in you know bettered era or whatever, and in, in, in not in COVID times of how that would be? Mm. That's all. No, that's fair. This, I mean, since United has never has never said they were going to block the seats, um, have we seen a negative? Have we seen negative? feedback on that i mean some people have complained but then they made it very clear we're not blocking seats we're just not we're not selling you know if we oversell it we'll give you the option or we sell it yeah. to capacity we'll give you the option they did block non-revs yes also yeah sure. i can't remember if it was 70 percent or 85 percent. i was reading those um but yeah so that is part of it but anyway um and on that same note uh, u.s carriers are really pushing the federal government to run temperature checks on passengers uh is this so, a reasonable request <sighs> Just imagine the TSA trying to roll out the infrastructure to add thermal screening to all the checkpoints. Well, just what we need. Do you get a do you get a you know a nudoscope and a? I mean, yeah. might as well just get your annual physical every time you go to the airport. <laughs> well, you know, ask for a private room when you get the uh, pat down. <laughs> You'll still misdiagnose you. Don't worry. <laughs> um, only if you hide a aerosol can of hairspray in your pants and then claim it was a medical. Well, tell us tell us about this because okay, this is this is this is on our yeah. notes. So, like a decade ago, a woman tried to bring hairspray through a checkpoint, was told she couldn't, went out, hid it on her person, and tried to go back through. It was found, uh, at which point she fought it, you know, fought the thing, saying, oh, no, 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 it's medical. It's a medical necessity. I, I uh, use it as uh, for cough suppressant. <laughs> <laughs> you know, in her defense, if she's from New Jersey, then it might actually be medical. <laughs> Keep the hair up. <laughs> Big hair. Big hair. Uh, parts of Texas, too. Big hair, um, closer to God. Bigger the hair, closer to God. That's right. Um, <laughs> no, she's from Arizona. Uh, but... Yeah, it, the whole thing was like th- there's been a long running sort of set of appeals in this and that. The TSA administrative judge actually assessed a fine uh, for the incident, um, you know, somewhere in the four figures, so a few thousand bucks for the attempts to hide it and then lie about it and everything else. Everything else, and the appeal has been going on since like I think the original judgment was handed down in 2011 or 2012. So this was like the quote unquote final. But then there's a line that says it can still be appealed. So who the hell knows? Um, Right, if you're an old old person, maybe just keep appealing it and, I guess, let your estate deal with paying it out when you die. But they're literally in the filing is comments like she insisted that it was medical, but then couldn't remember where she heard that hairspray is something that you could inhale as a cough suppressant and a nebulizer and things like that. It was just like so bizarre. <laughs> her, her local method. But uh, <laughs> I'm trying to understand. OK, so this has been this has been in courts for almost nine years. Yeah. Administrative judges within the TSA. And like there's apparently a Coast Guard. Someone was involved. I don't know that. How could it take this long? Yeah. And, and that, and how much does this actually cost, like, for all of this? You know what I mean? Like, how much is she paying her lawyers? Uh, she represented herself. Okay. Oh, great. This <laughs> gets better. This so much better. Um, and was late in all of her filings, but the DSA still was like, yeah, but you were only three days late. We're going to remind you that you were late, but we're going to keep going. Oh, um, my God. <laughs> anyways, back to the temperature screening thing. There's... I don't know, I'm torn on that just because is it better than nothing? Perhaps. Uh, is it a good idea for the TSA to be doing anything medically related? No. Um, although if we really do lose all our health care, if you're having if you're feeling sick, buy a refundable ticket and try to go through the TSA and see if you really are sick. <laughs> um, what, if, what if I really need to use a lounge? Yeah. Well, good luck with that. GG checkpoint. That's that's done now, right? 
It is. Um, but there's all sorts of questions about how it's going to work. But the, the latest thing was that a bunch of the U.S. carriers through A4A, Airlines for America, all came out and said, oh, if you know, sort of a, so just so everybody knows and isn't worried about it, when the TSA establishes that they're going to do temperature screenings, if you're denied access to the secure area because of your temperature, we'll refund your ticket. Don't worry. And it was like a it was just a super weird sort of way of phrasing the situation to me, like sort of presumptive of this other thing happening and reminding everybody not to be too worried about it from, you know, at least from the airline's perspective. I, I don't know. I mean, and again, like we talked about before on previous shows, having a uh, temperature check doesn't prove anything like right. you can be asymptomatic. Uh, or you could have something else, or which maybe you yeah. still should be flying, but yeah, yeah. It's just, I, it's like to me, it's like the last measure. I, I don't know. Anyway, um, Air Canada. Fe- I mean, but a fever is just your body trying to kill something off, right? Trying to respond to something to suppress it. Yeah. It's not just COVID that's fighting. So it's a pretty broad stroke, right? You could have like people have food poisoning and they develop a fever because your body's fighting that off. I'm sure Seth could talk to that. Yes, definitely. You, get, <laughs> you definitely get a fever with food poisoning. Yeah. But and like, what, what the question do? is, there should you should you be flying? Well, if like, okay, so you're somewhere, you're sick as a dog, and you're on your way home, and you just want to go home. Right? Should you not be allowed to go home? I mean, I'm, I I know I've flown with the fever. I'm sure, Seth has. Sure, Stephen has. I'm sure we've all flown with fevers at some point. Yes. I, the question is, potentially, should you? And is it, you know, is whatever is causing it contagious or not? And, 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 and. So there's lots of, and I mean, last time I remember doing it, I definitely had a fever coming home from Asia with food poisoning. I was, like, sweating in my seat, disgusting. But I also knew it was food poisoning. I was pretty sure it was food poisoning. Um, and was pretty confident that it wouldn't be a problem for other people. But I, if I was stuck in Kuala Lumpur or Tokyo, I would have been even more miserable. So I guess the question is, if I had COVID, I also would have been pretty miserable and wanting to just get home so I could get treatment. Um, so it, it sort of cuts both ways again. I don't know. But you imagine trying to explain to the TSA officer that you have a fever because you have food poisoning. Right. No, no, if they did this, the rule would have to be anyone with a temperature over X can't fly regardless of reason. Yeah. Well, and so a question then it becomes, should we just do COVID tests like the, what is it, the 10-minute test before you before you can go through security? They don't, they're not even in the 90s from a percentage of reliability, are they? I don't think they're reliable enough, and I don't understand uh, – I don't believe the costs – no one will mm-hmm. pay for it. Because mm-hmm. I've seen some people claiming or you know, people traveling because their test came back negative, and that's been their – it was the instant test that they had to add proof to, into where they were going. So anyway, um, Air Canada is fighting DOT complaints. <laughs> hip, hip, hooray. <laughs> yeah. So this is m- about more than just the refunds issue. Um, so that's what, why I think this is more interesting than not. So we talked a little bit a couple weeks ago about how passengers were filing formal DOT complaints because they weren't getting anywhere with Air Canada and the other Canadian airlines, right? Um, we finally got, after a bunch of, oh, not yet, not yet, we need some more time to respond, we finally got a real response from Air Canada on Friday of last week. And the response is, in short, piss off. But the longer version of it is basically saying, oh, well, yes, it's true that we used to provide refunds when we canceled flights, but that was just a goodwill gesture, not part of the uh, contract of carriage. So we're just working to the letter of the rule now, not, you know, being more generous. So that's okay. And on top of that, um, you know, it's all within our rights to do this sort of thing. And the guy in question is a uh, Bermuda citizen who bought a ticket from Canada to the United States. So he used our Canadian website. So it wasn't even targeting U.S. passengers. So the U.S. DOT rules don't apply to us at all. And that's super interesting to me. Hmm. Right. So. The, the argument they're making is essentially if you buy a ticket on a foreign airline's website, even going to the United States, it would no longer be subject to any of the DOT consumer protection rules like the 24 hour cooling period or um, full fare advertising requirements or anything like that. Um, and all the airlines essentially have sort of who fly to the U.S. have agreed that those rules really do apply to us because the DOT said they did. And now all of a sudden Air Canada is fighting it. 
Well, but it's just like the U.S. carriers have to oblige to the EU rules in leaving the EU. Right. Right, and that's been already determined that that does apply. But only for flights leaving the EU, not for flights leaving the United States. Correct, but in this case, the flight leaving Canada for... Oh, I see what you're saying. It's leaving Canada for the U.S. Yeah. Um, and to be fair, it was a round-trip ticket, so one could argue the other way. But because it was can- because it's Canada originating, they're arguing that it's not really subject to these rules. It's, I feel like this is opening a Pandora's box of huge mess for the industry overall and how the DOT and how U.S. customers are protected. I don't, I don't see the DOT backing down, though. So the interesting thing about the DOT's position is in its memo, uh, which is non-binding and non-regulatory, which Air Canada also points out, uh, and Air Canada also points out that an executive order was issued reminding agencies that they should do nothing to hamper economic recovery. And in their, from their perspective, anything that requires a refund is going to bankrupt the airline, so that's going to hamper economic recovery, although a consumer not having cash also is going to hamper economic recovery, so... <laughs> you know, tomato, tomato. But obviously, if you're in that position, fine, you, you fight for your side of it. Uh, but they're saying it's not a binding order. But the DOT's position has been, and they wrote in their document, we don't believe that we don't care why, whether the flight was canceled because of the airline's fault or not, which is another position that Air Canada was claiming. Like, it's not our fault that we had that the borders were closed. Um but the U.S. government saying it doesn't matter if the airline's fault or at fault or not. What matters is that the consumer is not. Mm. And Air Canada is basically saying that shouldn't apply to us. <laughs> so it's, it's going to be a really interesting ruling. Um, I could see this like I could. Yeah, there's also the like they Air Canada claiming that it would be an extra legal uh, ruling and that they can't actually enforce anything on foreign companies because neither Congress nor the Supreme Court gave them the right to do so. Well, but it's they could suspend the route authorities. There's a lot of things they could do, but yeah, it's super weird. Is it is it worth fighting this much over presumably a couple hundred dollars, maybe a couple grand at best? Even if it's all the consumers at this point, so it's millions, is it worth pissing the DOT off and picking this one? I mean, if if you if you if yeah, I mean, if you lose all your route authorities in the United States, uh, that would be bad. That, that's very bad. Yeah, it, it's it's a real interesting fight. I mean, it's surprising that they let it get this far, right? If this person was giving me this noisy, why not just silence them and do their refund as courtesy and call it done? Plus, it's not just one. There's at least 30 filed with the DOT, and who knows how many others would. But most people won't go to this extent of fighting it. Sure. And most people have not. Most people right. just accepted that. So if you just deal with the ones that go to this extent and just settle and be done with it. The it's United a... approach, if you will. Yeah. They, they've probably spent more on lawyers already. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The United approach is similar. United's filed two, or no, two like nine-page briefs saying everything the other guy has said is bullshit, but we're giving us money back anyways. <laughs> That's the uh, My Cousin Vinny version of the proceedings. <laughs> You guys, you guys. <laughs> Are you sleeping through the opening arguments? Everything that guy said is bullshit. Thank you. <laughs> um, so three new ARJ-21 airlines in China. So three new airlines have taken the ARJ-21s? Yeah, Comac, baby. They got that regional beast. Uh, and and which airlines are these? They're airlines you've heard of. Really? Uh, Air China, China Eastern, and China Southern. Air China. Wow. So last August, all three of them placed orders concurrently for uh, 35 each. Today, or over the weekend, they all received their initial deliveries in a joint event. Hmm. I mean, I guess it's good for them. Yeah, the interiors are all the same. People are, you know, on the one hand, there's a conversation about this shows that, you know, real airlines are willing to fly it. You know, airlines that are known in the Western world are still are willing to take a Chinese aircraft on. Uh, counterpoint is never going to leave the country. Uh, so kind of doesn't. I mean, it's not clear that that really matters. Also, China Southern, no, China Eastern rolled out a new subsidiary called 123 Air, which apparently is a, has a uh, Taoist sort of uh, Tao uh, religious base or whatever base to it, but the yin and the yang and all sorts of stuff like that. But they are going to put all of the China-built airplanes into this dedicated subsidiary. 
Interesting. And China Southern has a subsidiary called Xiang'an Airlines, which was supposed to be the same thing. And six weeks ago, when the aircraft was first spotted, it actually had that name on it. But when it was delivered, there was a sticker on top of that with China Southern. <laughs> so apparently that was a very recent change to how they're planning to roll it out, um, but possibly going to reestablish that uh, airline. The suggestion is when they open up at uh, Dushing Air- Airport in mm-hmm. Beijing, when they sort of are able to rebuild there after whatever outbreaks have been subsided um, or quelled or whatever, uh, they'll be able to rebrand and have the new dedicated uh, China aircraft only airline. Hmm. Interesting. I mean, I guess it's good for Comac to, to get some some yeah. traction. Sure. I mean, this is these are like deliveries numbers 32, 33, and 34, and it's been flying commercially for four years, so that's a super great pace, right? <laughs> uh, hashtag sarcasm? I don't, yeah. I don't know. Um, and, they, and they claim that they're going to d- build 30 more this year, though. Oh, okay. Sure. Do they have customers <laughs> for the 30 more? Yes. Uh, some of them are going to these existing orders. Uh, some are going. Chengdu Airlines still has a few pending. Um, there's a couple other airlines. Genghis Khan Airlines, I think, has some. Uh, there's another one. It's interesting. Just envision China having like uh, airline parking lots, like you go to the used car dealership. Yeah. Well, that's the other thing is these aircraft, when they initially launched, were super unreliable and didn't run every day, things like that. It's sort of hard to judge that now because like what is demand and who knows what planes should be flying every day. But they seem to be when they are flying, flying like for weeks at a time, three or four segments a day, pretty regularly. So still not quite to the aircraft utilization levels that you might expect, but also not nothing. Hmm. Yeah. The the only other thing I'd throw in there about this is I think that the ARJ-21 remains a learning process for Comac, and it's the 919 where they really are going to make a move. And The 919 think- is the single-aisle sort of Boeing Airbus competitor. Right now, their only uh, competition is, I guess, technically the SSJ-100, if that still exists, and the Ember-190s. Hmm. Right? We don't even have the CRJ-900 to think about anymore. So I guess maybe the MRJ, if that ever, or Space Jet, if that ever really happens, too. But... It's very different than uh, the 919 and the eventually the 929, which is the twin aisle that they're building in co- cooperation with uh, Russia's UAC. Is this to compete with like the A330 and 767 yeah. type thing? Okay. 787, but yeah. Yeah, interesting. Um, I want to talk about the Pakistani pilots. Uh, you know, we had there was a pack, we, we briefly discussed some of this, and uh, but they're well, putting pilots in scare quotes because I think yeah, well, whenever scare quotes were appropriately used, now is the time. Yeah, I, I mean they're not really pilots, right? <laughs> well, they, they might be pilots. They're just not licensed. Yeah, I mean they're pilots somewhere. This is the old <laughs> adage, Foz, Dress for the job you want. <laughs> exactly. I mean they probably played flight simulator for a few years and they feel comfortable. I mean this is unbelievable what they found. What is it? They said one in five pilots are don't actually can't carry a license. So if I remember correctly, it was something like 200 plus out of 862 pilots licensed by Pakistani authorities had some portion of their testing and certification process that was falsified. And of that, like 150-ish were current commercial airline pilots. Oh, my Lord. And those numbers may be off by a little bit. I'm pretty sure those are close. Wow. Yeah, it's exciting. And that's why Pakistan Airlines isn't allowed to fly nonstop to the United States. <laughs> I think there's a lot more than that, but that probably plays into it. <laughs> right? But, like, they fly to Europe. They fly yeah. to a lot of – I mean, they fly a lot of places. And I, I just started thinking about, like, based on the overall numbers, what are the odds that both pilots would have been not properly trained and licensed mm. for any given flight? Like, th- there's some weird statistic stuff you get into, and I don't know if the airline would ever report it, but – that's yeah. a scary number to me. Yeah. Like having two uh, lower trained pilots in the cockpit is definitely a scary thought. Well, but we also don't know if it's just PIA or if it's because there's at least one other airline, if not two more. Mm-hmm. I, yeah. Shaheen. PIA definitely had a huge number. What's also super strange to me is that, I mean, this comes, so this, this all comes out of the crash a couple weeks ago. I think it was the beginning of June where the plane and basically made a wheels up 
landing, scraped its engines, bounced up, tried to do a go-around, uh, eventually failed and crashed. Uh, they managed to figure out very quickly how many pilots didn't really have the, a proper licensing. So, like, how long have they known that? Or just, like, did everybody suddenly just admit it? Like, oh, yeah, yeah, actually, I don't have a license. Like, where's this data coming from, and how did they get there so quickly? And did they always know this, and were trying to just pretend everything was okay? That's what worries me, too. Mm-hmm. A lot of this worries me. Mm-hmm. Well, part of it might be related right, to Imran Khan, or whoever the current prime minister is, who's been there for a few years. Allegedly, he's been cleaning up a lot of the country, because this is a country that's been rife with uh, corruption. Um, so in many different, it's just one of those things where you might not have gotten it, gotten to it, and then that crash unearthed it. Who knows? But there's been a lot of other things that have been happening in the country to get rid of a lot of the past corruption. But it's just it's it's you you unearth you flip over one rock and you find all this other stuff that you did end up dealing with. Hmm. Hmm. But it's it's you know generations of corruption that they have to go through. Yeah, and I wouldn't be surprised if the same thing ha- exists in India as well. Hmm. Uh, I mean, do you guys do you guys do you guys think that the findings of the crash? Um, will be something to do with this, or has there been any word along those lines? I mean, they were. Say- I think they were just saying they forgot to put the landing gear down. Well, I mean, I mean, are they one of the untrained pilots? That's that's what I want to know. I, I thought well, the pilot had had issues. I don't know if they've come come back and said he was unlicensed, but they, they he had had issues in the past. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I haven't seen anything one way or the other on that either. But it was definitely like from the data we've seen. I think, and obviously waiting to get read out from the flight data recorder and the voice recorder. Um, it was a much steeper than typical approach. Then forgot, and apparently they, there's something I saw said that they were like talking about other stuff. It was not a sterile flight deck. Yeah, it, it wasn't sterile. They were distracted by conversation about uh, COVID. Mm-hmm. And then they were listening to one of our podcast episodes talking about it. That'd be God, I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> uh, podcast well, travel podcast responsible. Oh man, <laughs> they say they say all press all press is good press. I don't know about that. So um, our listenership would go up for at least a short term. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, we make so much money doing this. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't say anything about money. I just said listenership. Uh, so the U.S. visitors have kind of been blocked from visiting Europe. And I mean, what's the full story here, though? Is are we are we really blocked? Are we kind of blocked? What's what what's the deal? It's it's hard for me to get a full understanding of it, in part because. It seems like the overall EU policy is based on, like, don't let people in from countries that have higher outbreak rates than us. And that includes the United States. But apparently countries can individually choose to apply the rules to a less, to some extent. Mm-hmm. Also, I've been reading on sort of Facebook travel groups from people who are going, showing up with tests, saying they're negative and getting in. Um, how exactly that works. And usually through a third third country, though, not mm-hmm. direct. So This is supposed to take effect on the 1st of July, though. Yeah, but... That was sort of the revised version based on other rules from other places that also still weren't really letting people in. It was supposed to basically harmonize the policies of, you know, rather than being the haphazard stuff that had been around, is my understanding. So I don't know. But the UK will open up to visitors. Maybe. That's, I read, was reading something earlier today that the UK is looking to open up on a broad basis. Yeah, well, I think the UK is desperately trying to do that and suspend its inbound quarantine rules so that other people will let them in because... Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, it's the whole thing. I, mean, I honestly, the, to, like, why should they let the Americans in, given that the outbreak rate is so much greater here? Like, it's because I, te- I it's because we've, we've tested more. Bullshit. Uh, <laughs> I also, though, I don't know if you guys saw U.S. Travel, which is like the inbound tourism mm-hmm. agency, issued a statement basically saying this is a terrible ruling because all of the U.S. travel employ travel related employees are going to lose their jobs because. Like, the U.S. government certainly is now going to have to reciprocate, and we're all going to lose our jobs because Europeans won't be able to come here either. And I, there's so many things wrong with that. Among them, like, why not point out that the U.S. has terrible policies, and if we fixed our shit, 
then we'd be allowed to travel because we wouldn't be all sick and dying. And also the idea that like the Europeans super want to come here and suddenly they're going to be blocked, except that the U.S. did already block a lot of them. So like it's not really reciprocal. It was actually we acted first. And I don't know, just like the number of ways in which it seems stupid to me is massive. Yeah, doesn't our travel ban still uh, – isn't it still in place? Well, it's – you're uh, limited to certain entry airports still definitely and there's theoretically like paperwork you're supposed to fill out. But as is typical, the uh, customs guys at the board – or the border guys aren't necessarily always reading it or mm-hmm. pairing. Uh, sometimes they do, and like when we had Traeger on a couple of weeks ago when he went to Vegas, he flew to LA, and he's like, "Yeah, you know, you had to get off the plane a few at a time, and someone took your temperature and interviewed you." Or there was the, uh, some people posting from a JFK arrival yesterday. It's like, "Yep, I landed and was had to ask someone where to get my papers," and they're like, "I just threw it away. We don't care." <laughs> so, oh God, yeah, awesome. for JFK. Yeah. <laughs> we don't want to file that stuff. Just chuck it. Immigration. Yeah. We don't have an immigration department. Just get out of here. And cash so, it that way. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Make sure you get one of the guys in the terminal who's asking if you need a cab. They're much better. Um, <laughs> Trustworthy, absolutely trustworthy. Did I go too far? <laughs> no. Um, but yeah, like, I don't know. And also the idea that if U.S. people can't travel to Europe, odds are that some of them who still feel compelled to travel are going to travel more in the United States. And so that arguably supports more jobs here than not. So I don't know. The, the whole thing was stupid at many levels. And I just got really mad at the way U.S. travel presented their argument. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think it's bad news that, that we've been banned or blacklisted from Europe. Uh, just from a from a policy perspective of of how poorly we're doing, um, I think it just it reflects that. So yeah, uh, yeah. I think I, I understand why Europe's doing it. I mean, they're doing decent. I wouldn't say they're doing great, but they're doing better than us. So why why change that? <laughs> um, anyway, uh, we have some follow up. So we talked about uh, this was a couple weeks ago. I think we talked about planes being too light during takeoff and kind of like shooting up too fast and basically. Uh, just screwing some things up. And Seth, you actually heard from a listener uh, and got some answers. Yeah. So uh, thanks, Officer Wayfinder, for some explanation on this. He basically is saying that there's two different ways to define climb within the aircraft, um, one of which is you sort of you set the vertical rise rate, and the other is through uh, airspeed. And apparently, if you're using the vertical rate, uh, it adjusts the engine speed to handle things better versus if you're using just you know thrust rate it just climbs it may climb faster when the plane is lighter and that will change the pacing um and again that also could potentially play into overshooting altitudes when you're trying to level off and like going too high accidentally because um the trim isn't keeping up correctly Mm -hmm. Um, and and apparently the parts of the autopilot uh don't necessarily manage that super great um, and apparently he, he flies a DC-10, uh, and if they go vertical climb too quickly, the autopilot will lock out, like, faster than 4,000 feet per minute. So if you're super light and climbing too quickly, um, the autopilot may get confused. So hmm. obviously that's aircraft-specific yeah. and avionics-specific. Um, and then he also mentions, because one of the things that we talked about was there had been an increase in tail strikes because of this, or that had been reported, um, and he knows that that shouldn't be happening. <laughs> Which I agree. I would prefer that that also did not happen. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, thanks for the information. It's great to have. Yeah. I mean, I, I think the part where the autopilot will kick out and like reject things if you're climbing too quickly in certain cases is super cool. Yeah, and he also mentions he talks about pressurization, right? A little bit, and said yeah. that that uh, the pressurization is fully. It's pretty much automatic, but sometimes at higher altitudes it can't keep up when you, when you're climbing at those rates. So it basically just can't uh, pressurize the cabin fast enough uh, at, during which a four thousand foot climb, which is super four thousand feet per minute. Yeah, which is super what you want to hear as a passenger. Like, oh, I'm getting a little dizzy up here. <laughs> a little lightheaded. Are you guys? Yeah. Uh, I just hope it's only the passengers that have that problem, not the pilots. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Is it nap yeah. time? Well, I appreciate the feedback. Uh, anything else you guys want to talk about? 
No? Uh, I definitely want to have a quick conversation for our Patreon listeners about how Liat is about to collapse in the Caribbean and what that might mean for connecting the islands. Okay, let's do that then. Um, to our to our listeners, thanks for listening. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at dotslines, more dots, more lines dot com. Leave a message, leave a comment, leave a question. Love to hear from you. Until next time, happy travels. Take care. Bye bye.